Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Tarantino. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Kareen Kazakevich. Kareen, how are you? Hi, Bob. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm excited that we are also joined by our colleague, Jim Russell. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I, just a programming note, Jim, I believe you are the first non-co-host return guest in the history of this podcast. It's always good so, to be on the cutting edge, Bob. So welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Cotter. Before we get too far into this discussion, I'm going to ask Corrine to read our usual disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. So Jim, we have you here today because we want to discuss, of course, the foundational building blocks of production financing. So unless you, you know you're making a student film with volunteers and using your school's equipment, you're gonna need money to make your production happen. And of course, there isn't one way to get money for a production. In fact, there are many of them. And in this short podcast, we probably can't get into too much detail about all of them, but we'd love to pick your brain about what those key sources of production financing are. So let's say you're a producer, you want to make a feature film. What are some of the key ways that you should be thinking about financing your production? Um, well, I think when it comes down to it, like when you're a producer, you're sort of focusing for a long time on your development phase and sort of trying to get your, your, your sort of rights together and trying to get to a place where you can start thinking about financing. If you're looking at a, at a feature film, which is a little bit different than television, a little bit different than animation. If you're looking at film, um, you're really looking at sort of four different buckets of financing. Um, so the first bucket would be sort of your traditional types of commercial sale. Um, so you you know that can either be to a distributor who will sort of accept a license of rights in a given territory in exchange for some kind of cash consideration. Um, if you're lucky enough to sell right to an end user like a broadcaster and bypass a distributor, that's also another option. Uh, sometimes you have to go by way of a sales agent who will sort of be engaged to enter into those end, end point sales on your behalf. So those kind of commercial sources are, are the, the traditional ways to sort of bring financing to your financing plan. Um, if you're in a jurisdiction like Canada, uh, you also have a, a fairly robust um, ability or fairly wide availability of um, non-commercial financing. So if you think along the lines of government-sponsored equity, um, government tax incentives, um, you know, this, it's not really a feature film concept, but like a CMF license fee top up. So those are things where you'll, you'll apply for them. Um, and kind of a subset of that are sort of uh, granting programs. Um, if you've got a specific topic uh, for your film project, you might be able to connect with a philanthropic organization that will give you money. You might be able to with um, a, a, an agency that gives out money as part of its mandate. So, you know, you've got commercial money on the, on the front end, then you've got these kind of non-commercial government and government incentive ones on the, as kind of your second most popular way to finance. The third one would really be, and this is a little, a little more challenging to get, 
um, is sort of private investment. Uh, whether you can find um, either a high net worth individual or a, a group or a fund or someone who's interested in providing financing, um, either because it fits in with their philanthropic endeavors or if they like your cast or they like your director or they like you and they're willing to sort of uh, put in sort of real at-risk money in order to help you uh, get your financing together. That That's of the three, I think that's more difficult to get and quite rare, but it's definitely out there. Um, and the fourth one is the hardest one for producers to swallow, which is um, we're all used to trying to make films with OPM, other people's money. And the last bucket is when you're forced to invest your own money. Um, that can be along the lines of, depending on your project, it might be friends and family putting in some kind of private investment. More often than not, it's about you looking at the portion of your budget that um, is sort of allocated to your producer fees and your corporate overhead recoveries, the money you would normally pay yourself out of the budget, and you would find a way to postpone or defer those um, to have your own skin in the game. And, and those, like, th this is a wild and woolly and fun industry, so there's lots of different ways to finance projects, but those are kind of the four main buckets that you see. Amazing. I love how you describe this as a fun industry. Good for you. Um, so it, it, let's just focus on, on the initial buckets that you described there because, and I'm going to call them receivables. So sort of third-party receivables, because I think the critical component from a legal perspective and from a legal practitioner's perspective, including yours, is all of those receivables come in at a variety of different times and producers need their money now in order to get their project made. And so how do they get their money now when you know a distribution agreement says, well, we'll pay you money when you deliver the film and the tax credit is only payable once production is completed and you've completed all the various filings and audits. How do producers actually access the money up front? Yes, especially, it's a very good point, Bob, but not just because of when the receivables are payable. So for example, a typical distribution advance on a foreign sale would be at most a 20% deposit with 80% being delivered, usually on complete delivery. Um, we get into what complete versus essential delivery is, but your money does come at the back end. Um, and also because if you're producing in Canada, chances are almost 100% that you've got some form of uh, federal and or provincial tax credit in your financing plan. And those obviously are payable way after completion and delivery. I, I say way after, it, it's maybe six to eight months, depending on how backed up the, the, the fiscal authorities are. Um, but all to your point, the money's all coming at the end. Um, and this is why we have a, a fairly substantial interim financing uh, business. There are several Canadian lenders, uh, you know, Schedule One banks, Schedule Two banks, who are more than happy um, to lend against these receivables. Um, in the United States, there are um, also banks who do it and who are comfortable lending against uh, Canadian receivables and Canadian tax credits, but it's a pretty solid market up here with the Canadian banks. Um, and the sort of the pith and substance of the Canadian um, bank loan is you'll, you'll close up front. Um, if you can close during prep, that's ideal. Maybe you don't close until the principal started, which terrifies everybody, but it does happen. Um, but the idea would be, as a producer, you have to work on your cash flow. So you have to work on when you're when you're going to be 
having the spend go out according to your pre-production, production, post-production schedules. And then you have to match that up with the, with the projected inputs from your various financing sources. And then you go to the bank and you figure out kind of how you fill those gaps. And so your bankers look at your cash flow, they look at your financing sources, and they work out what your maximum loan requirements would be over the course of production. And they, they then you know, create your loan agreement based on that. Thanks, Jim. So I want to take you back to uh, something that we've mentioned a few times now, and that is a tax credit. Now, we hear this term a lot in the Canadian film financing landscape um, because it's obviously very important, but just taking it back to, to basics, what exactly is a tax credit? What is it based on? And we know that there are different types of tax credits across Canada. Is it worth making a strategic decision about where you produce in order to benefit from certain types of tax credits, or are they all more or less the same? It's a very good question, and let's let's just distinguish between a couple of things. So, first of all, by the very nature of producing, you're going to be sort of purchasing goods and services. So, you're going to have sort of your monthly rebate of GST and HST. So, that's just kind of in the normal course of running your business. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about instead are are the various federal and provincial uh, tax credit incentives that are out there. Um, and when you shake it all out, because there's there's all kinds of different tax credits. But when you shake it all out, what these tax credits really are, are a rebate of costs incurred. Um, so when they were first brought out, the first Canadian content credits came out in 1995, and the first production services credits came out in 1997. And when they first, when they were first introduced, what the government said is, look, as a producer, you're hiring a lot of people. So you're incurring a lot of labor expense. So the original tax credits came out effectively as a rebate of your labor expense. So they would look at your to the totality of your budget, they would look at the totality of your labor spend, and then they would sort of calculate based on your total qualifying labor expense, they would kind of run a formula and that's, that's what the tax credit is. Now, the tax credit is effectively, we all call it a tax credit as if it was some crown debt that we could just go collect. What it really is, is it's a, it's a rebate of expense that comes in the form of a tax refund. So if you've ever asked yourself, what, what, why do we always have these single purpose vehicles that we set up? Um, you know, I'm sure people have talked about limiting liability and risk protection, that's one reason. But in the tax credit context, the reason you do it is to isolate all of your costs and uh, income in one entity so that that one entity can then um, claim the tax credit in its tax, in its tax return and the government pays the credit, so to speak, by issuing the tax refund. Um, so that's, I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff that we, we can get into another day if you really want to do a deeper dive. But basically, you know, you, you incur your production expense, and then you file your application for your tax credit with your tax return. And then what it does is it generates a refund. Um, in terms of the different types, um, I, I think the provinces, it's very interesting because the, the, the federal government has sort of its content credit, it's like it's one content credit and it's one services credit. Um, if you're going to produce Canadian content, you, you do have the opportunity to get the higher credit um, because the, the, sorry, the Canadian content credit is a little bit more robust than the Canadian federal services credit. Um, but there are jurisdictions um, in certain provinces where you really have to run the numbers. 
um, because in like, for example, in, I think in Manitoba, there's no distinction, right? Like there's no distinction between a content credit and a services credit. It's really just like an industry focused credit. Um, so you just kind of go there if you want to. Um, in provinces like Ontario and BC and Quebec, depending on whether like you'll see people go federal content credit and maybe they'll go with a provincial services credit because when you run the math you, you can actually sometimes get a, a more robust credit out of the services option um, in terms of shopping jurisdictions absolutely like you know some of the provinces have introduced things like regional bonuses so if you if you go outside of a, a, a major metropolitan center you get a more enhanced credit if you come back for Come back for more, like you know, kind of a repeat customer. You get an enhanced credit, so there there are definite opportunities to kind of look around, but it's a little bit of a push and a pull, right? Because when you're putting your production budget together, it's you're sort of assuming that you're going to crew up in a particular location, and if you have to go to another jurisdiction in order to chase their credit, you do have to run the numbers to see whether the there's going to be an additional expense um, to going to another province. The other thing you have to think about is, as a producer, where are you located? Um, so, for example, if you're an Ontario resident producer, it may make sense um, at first blush to go to Manitoba, but in order to access the, the sort of full array of credits in Manitoba, you'd have to bring a, a Manitoba resident producer on board. And that sort of starts to get into issues about who controls production. So you, you do have to look at that push and pull. Most producers, um, it's one of the reasons why you see a lot of interprovincial co-productions in Canada is precisely on this point, um, is that it may, it may make sense to partner up with someone in another province to take advantage of a higher, higher available credit. So Jim, just to sort of underscore some of the issues that you, you kind of hinted at there, a lot of jurisdictions outside of Canada have tax credits. What, what makes the Canadian tax credit system particularly attractive? I think one reason one, one reason it's very attractive is it's been around for so long, um, and there's there's been a lot of um, a lot of confidence both at the federal level and the provincial level in the credits. Um, some of the credits, for example, not not to pick on any jurisdiction in particular, uh, but various jurisdictions that have brought out credit programs have sort of said, "Well, we'll do it," but the maximum available in any fiscal year is this much or the program's only gonna be around for three years, et cetera. And given sort of the life cycle of a project, as well as sort of given the fact that you may finance, you may assume your financing includes a credit only to find out the credit's not available by the time you go to camera, or by the time you finish production. Um, and sometimes when they cancel the credits in jurisdictions, they may or may not be subject to a so-called grandfathering clause. Uh, which means that they end on the date they say they end, as opposed to saying, okay, everybody who was in production or filed an application before that end date will get the credit. So some of the jurisdictions that have these credits, th there, has been, there has been concern in the past about whether or not they will be viable in the long term. Um, the truth of the matter is that in certainly in the last five years, a lot of the jurisdictions that um, have sort of withstood the test of time have become very popular. So, you know, so the credits in Ireland and the UK, for example, there's fairly high confidence. So people will be will sort of make sure that they can throw them in their financing plan. More particularly, it's less true for Canadian lenders, but US-based lenders who really service the market in the US, particularly in California, um, they 
have a very high confidence in foreign tax credits, both domestic US and then non-US, including Canadian. So you'll find that if you've got a multi-jurisdictional project, you may find yourself wanting to contact a US-based media lender because they'll be able to say, oh yeah, we've done, we've done that Hungarian credit and we've done, we've done the Euro homage funding in Europe and we've done Louisiana. So they can do like a one-stop shop for all the incentives. Uh, whereas what you do see a lot of, particularly in the independent film market, particularly in the treaty co-production context, is two or more lenders. So the Canadian Canadian producer may have its bank do the Canadian piece. And then there may be a UK or, or European-based bank that will do the rest. So it and that just it drives up pricing, like it can be done, but it, it creates transactional friction and cost. So it's always better to kind of find a place where you can do all your borrowing in one institution. And speaking about borrowing and in institutions, I've been meaning to pick your brain about something that we call completion bonds or completion guarantees. This always fascinated me, the idea that somebody could just take over your production if you, uh, <laughs> if you failed. So I, I, you know, tell us more about this. Is that truly how this works? Do banks require a completion guarantee? Tell us more about this thing that I find very fascinating. Well, the, the completion guarantee market, it, it's, it's, it's got a very fascinating history. It, it really came out of the construction financing model. Um, so very, very similar concept that you are basically building a project, um, whether it's your film or an actual shopping mall, and you're hiring someone to kind of monitor the incurrence of your expenses. And the idea was that if the producer uh, ran out of money or was going over budget, or there was some intervening event, um, the financiers would take comfort from the fact that someone was on site uh, to make sure that, that they could take over the project as needed. Um, in the in the feature film context, um, you still you still do see completion guarantees. They used to be much more common in the Canadian landscape. They they used to be we used to see them on almost every feature film. Uh, we used to see them on television production, um, and they've they they've sort of fallen away, particularly on TV. Um, because there's a cost associated with it. So when, you, when you're looking at getting a completion guarantor in place, they charge a fee. Um, the fee is based on your budget. And they also have certain requirements about the size of the contingency that you have in your budget. Um, and so the contingency is mon money in your budget and your financing plan that you've got to set aside that you can't pay for other more hard costs. And so there's a lot of resistance from producers to do that. But at, at the end of the day, the reason banks like completion guarantees is, is the completion guarantors or bonders, as they're sometimes called, um, they're either directly insured or reinsured by deep pockets. Um, so whether, whether it's a syndicate of insurance um, companies overseas or in the United States, whether it's direct insurance or reinsurance, basically what it is is they, they have a deep pocket either beside them or behind them. So what the completion guarantor says to the lender, the bank, is they'll say, look, if this, if this film is not completed and delivered on time and on budget, um, we'll cover the cost, right? So if there's an abandonment of production, the completion guarantor will actually write a check to the financiers that will cover off whatever debt, whatever debt they've advanced during production. Um, it's tricky, right? Because the, you, you have this interesting relationship um, uh, between kind of the, the completion bond company who's trying to oversee and ultimately is the deep pocket that's going to be on the line to pay back the bank if there's a problem. But they're also working with some 
very powerful and creative producers who want to sort of get their vision on screen and have sort of been nursing this project along. So there's an inherent tension. Um, if you watch the film A Life Aquatic, there's a completion bond character that actually is in the movie who kind of comes along with the crew um, because they, the crew has, is notoriously bad at kind of staying on, on budget and on time. And so they actually put someone right there. And that does happen in our real life. Like they, the completion bonder is entitled to have a representative on set to make sure that things are going along the way they're supposed to go. Um, the difficulty with completion bonds is that they don't cover everything, right? They cover, they cover what's basically called technical delivery. So if you were to look at a, a standard distribution agreement or a standard sales agency contract, and you look at all the lists of delivery materials, there's only a, a certain subset, an important subset, but there's only a subset of those delivery materials that would be covered by the completion guarantor. And they only cover technical acceptance. So they don't, they don't guarantee that it will have, for example, um, an artistic or creative um, element to it. It's just, here's the script, here's what we said we would deliver. And the, the example we always give people is, you read a script and you see that there's some incredible pyrotechnic scene that's supposed to happen. Like the bonder comes in and says, okay, well, how can we do that cheaper? So what they'll do instead is rather than showing the car crash, you'll see the car go out of shot and then there'll be like a small CGI of the crash and it'll cost a lot less. And so a lot of producers complain about the bond relationship because they'll say, that's not my artistic vision. And then the risk that everybody runs is that the distributors and sales agents who are expecting a certain thing based on the script they read and the pitch they were given, the end product may not look like what they wanted or look like what they bought. They bought. So it's, it's kind of a fraught thing. The completion bonders that I've worked with in my career do an exceptional job um, and they, they, know, they know their role in the show, um, but when things go sideways, it can get pretty spicy. Amazing. Thanks, Jim. I'm, what I'm forecasting here is that you are going to be the first triple returnee to the podcast because we have an enormous number of topics that we could still cover things like gap financing, things like how co-productions fit into this, things about how part of profit participation works, what co-financings are, but that's for another episode. I would encourage all listeners who are interested in learning more about, in particular, the tax credit structures that we've discussed, accessing the Producing in Canada guidebook produced by Dentons Canada. We will put a link in the show notes. And Jim, thank you for your time today and sharing your insights and your wisdom. And Kareen, thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Until next time.